The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Hello and welcome to Scrambled. I'm your co-host, Chad Douglas. And I'm Nikki Shields. This is episode 17, Extracurricular Anxiety. Yeah, not activity, anxiety, because sometimes those extracurricular activities will lead to anxiety. And we have another guest joining us today. We're loving these guests that we're getting. And we have Brad Hoyt, who is the athletic director of John Wood Community College in Quincy, Illinois. And he's also a parent of three children, one of whom lives with anxiety. So we kind of thought in crafting this episode, he might be just the perfect guest to talk about this. So Welcome to Scrambled, Brad. Hey, well, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on. It'll be fun. So my first question is you, with sports, youth sports in particular, how important that is that to a child's development? So when they get older in life, what are they going to learn from that? Well, I, I think there's so many benefits um, and there's collateral to, to anything, right? Good and bad. But um, for me, the way that I um, really frame sports, youth sports, and even as you get older is public competition. I think it's... I think there's an incredible benefit of learning how to how to kind of produce, how to kind of perform, if you will, um, how to make mistakes in public. I think that's a lesson as adults that comes in really, really handy um, as you go. So I think first and foremost, I think I think the thing that people sometimes underrate from an athletic perspective is how public it really is. Now, at the youth sport level, um, it's public amongst parents and and grandparents and. Um, people that come to watch the game, but but it's also very public for the opponents, parents and grandparents, and people you know and people you don't know, and some folks you see bef- you've seen before and some not. And so I think there's so many lessons within something that you kind of are learning very very publicly. There's very few things. If if a kid has a test and doesn't do well, a lot of times that's between them and their teacher and and then their parent. Um, you you step onto a soccer field, you step onto a basketball floor, and you make a mistake. That's in front of everybody that's there. So talk talk about built in anxiety to begin with. That right. it creates it right out of the gate. But then again, you get to be a teammate. Um, I'm I'm a huge proponent of what it's like to be a great teammate and how important that is. I think you learn that in that process. I think helps relationships down the road. I think it helps connections down the road and how to work with a team and roles and responsibilities and expectations. So, so again, I obviously in the in the line of work that I do and, and the kids and that I work with at the college level and below, um, I think it teaches so many really important things uh, moving forward. I hadn't thought about that until you said it about the publicness of as soon as you get on that field or that court, you're right out there in, in view for everyone. You're performing. So it's, it's really no difference if you're on a soccer team than if you're singing a solo on the stage in front of a sold out audience. Yeah, absolutely. And for kids, public is four people. And if two of them you don't know, that becomes really public really, really quick. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I had that same thought that, oh, I hadn't thought of it in the way that you said it, that it is so public. Even as a parent, new anxieties are generated. My kiddo played soccer for you know one whole season. And I, I remember those, those first games, I sat there thinking, well, what is this feeling? Like, I'm nervous about her making a mistake. But I, but it's just for fun. Why am I having a hard time with this? Why was I? But that that absolutely summed it up. Is it was the anxiety about 
the making a mistake publicly. Everyone's seeing that, that being visible. And then you also have people hopefully cheering the kids on, but you also have when you have the mistake of, of them not cheering you on or, or mm-hmm. saying, even if it's something um, unconscious, and I've caught myself doing this at a youth sport because I'm, like Brad, a very big proponent of cheering for both teams, really, but really your team that your kiddo's on. And at soccer, like somebody hits the goal and the goalie misses it, and I'm just like, oh. And then I realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a, it's a child. And I didn't mean it toward the child. It's just I was upset that the other team scored a goal, right? But to that kiddo on the field, they now hear a potential strange parent not saying yeah. great things about yeah, him. So not being happy with their performance. What does that do to a kid? Well, we tell a lot of people, I mean, sports can make normal people really nutty, you know? <laughs> and then you add sports that involve your kids. Um, that takes it to a whole nother level. And and I, I've gone through that. Again, my oldest, and I think we'll talk about her a little bit, she went through and wasn't, wasn't much of a team sport, athletic kind of minded kid. But I've got a junior in high school right now that's that's competed very, very publicly for a number of years. And, and I can tell you when you're sitting in the stands and, and your son or your daughter is there and there's a thousand people or fifteen hundred people watching it, and for me, I work in this space. This is mm-hmm. what I do. It's it's uh, I live this. I, I can say with a ton of certainty that it it takes it to another level. It takes the parent parent anxiety to another level. You get ears. You can hear everything. You can hear all the you can hear all the looks, um, if you will, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe more so than than what you would if you just went to en- to enjoy a game. So it can make uh, it can make. I've seen very, very normal, well-adjusted folks lose their minds in an athletic event. And I think it's exactly what we're talking about is that public piece of it. And I, th- I think the point you made, Brad, about it make learning to make mistakes in front of other people is is really important as you you know grow up to get a job and, and work. You have to be able to gracefully handle a mistake. And I, I never thought about the role that sports could play in that piece. So that was a great point. Brad, what advice would you have to parents who were – looking at at athletics at uh, extracurricular activities versus team sports versus single sports you sit there and you know we've talked about soccer or basketball football baseball all team sports then you have sports like gymnastics and cheerleading and golf and tennis unless you do doubles tennis but you, how do you know whether your kid is a team sport player or just a single sport player i don't know if you really know until they perform right mm-hmm. again we're talking about the public performance piece of it and i think it's i think you'll have kiddos that as you're watching them in a um, in a team sport, something's just not they're just not fitting, right? Like the the role piece of it, the dependent. Um, again, my daughter um, who went through her like from an early age, and I I mean I was like any other athletic parent. My my wife played um, sports in college. I played sports in college. That's what we did. And like my daughter was born with a basketball in her hand. Like it was one of those, like, this is it. This is the essence of my parenting is going to be her athletic career, right? Like it was going to be defined by how that went. And we went to, you know, one of those three-year-old basketball things. And she Mm -hmm. just said, I'm out. (laughs) Um, That's not uh, that. And some of it was just the teammate piece of it, the people relying on her um, in that. She got into dance. She got into gymnastics, very individual. She can control her own controllables. And she excelled at that. And her, so her personality really dictated that a little bit. So I, I don't know if you ever really know until, until they can experience it. And I would challenge folks to have their kids experience both the team piece and the individual piece because it may unlock something. One or the other may unlock something. And there's some folks, and I was one, individual sports would not have been my thing. I, mm-hmm. I love the team. I love the 
people relying on me and me relying on other people. Like that's just kind of the way my personality was built. The individual thing just gets me in my head too much. And it's um, that, like, that wasn't a good fit for me. So I, again, it's not just about the sport. It's about the way the sport's conducted that I think as youth and as kids are, are, kind of experimenting with that, I think it's an important, important to expose them to both kinds. One thing that I like that I've done, I've, I've done some, and we've talked about on the, on earlier episodes of coaching youth sports and I've gotten to be where I'm about at my max to where I can teach more skill. I can teach basics, then I'm kind of out, but I've used the analogy before of a clock and I'll show the kids the inside of a clock. And I'm like, what do you notice? Well, there's big dials, there's thin dials. Some go clockwise, some go counterclockwise, some move slower, some move faster. There's a couple ones. And and so the goal is, you know, you show some of the dials are are faster than others. Other kids are taller, so they're going to have a bigger leg stride and and get down the field or the court faster. And some move a little slower, but they all work together as a team. Taking soccer, for example, some kids are great at defense, but they're not that fast to run offense. Well, you have the kids that can run fast and dribble the ball real well. That's what makes everything work together. So that's what I love about sports and, and working with the team. It's just when you get that little cog in the wheel um, with anxiety that starts to double think themselves. And one thing with anxiety is you get low self-esteem and I'm not good enough for this. And then you think everyone doesn't like you on the team because you're not holding up your part of the team. So Nikki, I guess my question is for you, then what advice do you have for kiddos or parents of kiddos that are like that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take my answer and kind of back up a little bit. I, I tend to think of extracurricular activities in several categories. So there's competitive, right? Like, so the traditional like sports mm-hmm. and, and team oriented things, there's performance. So, you know, dance and, and gymnastics, and those, those can be competitive too, but they're, they're definitely uh, performance or individual performance based. Then there's spiritual activities. So you can have youth groups and after school, you know, church-based things. Um, and then you can have skill-based activities. So things like 4-H or art class or things mm-hmm. like that where you build skills. And so the advice I would give to parents is to sort of dabble in each of those categories when your kids are little and find out where they're the most comfortable because you're going to notice right away that you know they they really don't enjoy the performance aspect or they're really not into being competitive. Maybe they don't care if they win or lose. And so that's not awesome for a team dynamic. Those kids, maybe they do better in a skill-based thing where it's more individual skill like art or music. Um, and then uh, those that you know, really enjoy, you know, the spiritual aspect, there's lots of skills that can come from that. So it's if you dabble in each of those different categories, you'll see right away, I think, Brad, you said something earlier, you you can tell you get a kid into an activity, you can tell if that's kind of their zone, or if it's really not and kids will tell you too. You know, I, I remember um, the, the kid that played soccer that I mentioned a little bit ago, after a couple of games, she, she said, Mom, I think I just want to be a watcher. I don't really want to play, you know, and here she is five years old telling me, yeah, I'm not really into that. Um, so I knew and I took it seriously. So then we got her involved in music and some things that were more individually interesting and, and appealed more to her. And so, um, the, the best advice I can give is try lots of things so that you can rule it out. Um, as a kid myself, I had a million different activities and I was not very good at a lot of them, but that's okay because I knew that. And it helped me, like as I went, you know, through childhood and adolescence, I identified what I was good at by ruling out those things that just weren't a good fit. Um, so that's the best bet. But taking it a little more into your your actual question, Chad, the the if you have anxious kids, sports or extracurriculars are going to bring out a different version of their anxiety, but that doesn't mean you quit. It doesn't mean you don't do it. Um, you have to listen and talk with them about what it is that they find anxiety producing. And that can very much bring up a new idea or help you to figure out how to better provide them with support. Um, so in kind of flashing back to our episode about when to push kids and, mm-hmm. you know, when not to, um, a, a big part of it, you know, is is the, the advice I gave in that episode. If they have the skills and the support to do it, it's okay to push 
right? So if you've got a kid that's in an activity and you're seeing anxiety, you know they have the skills, you know they have the supports, they have you know coaches and teammates who who have their back, push a little, right? If they don't have the skills and they don't have the supports, don't push because then you can create you know, trauma and additional distress that's not necessary. So that that's how I would sum up my advice on that. Okay, great. Now, Brad, we mentioned that you're an athletic director at John Wood Community College. You're also the men's basketball coach. So you've done some coaching. Have you have you coached the littles as well? Have you done some youth? Yeah, I've done. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and they're about the same. You know, I mean, okay. having, you know, 18 to 22 year old kids are sometimes the same as eight to 12 year old kids. So there, there's at times there's really no difference. But yeah, I've, I've spent I've spent a lot of time with whether it's my own kid or whether it's in camp environments or or, or whatnot. I, I, I like spending time with those younger ones. Now, so how do you handle things as a coach then when you have all these personalities come together to work as a team and you get somebody who might be perceived as stubborn or acts up or runs away when it's really just their anxiety kicking in and they're trying to figure out what to do. That's the part of coaching that I really enjoy, right? So I really like the team dynamic piece of it. And and again, it, it my, my normal job, my coaching job here, we have folks from all over the world that kind of come to Quincy, Illinois, and then we try to turn them into a team. And, and that's no different whether you're in a camp environment or whatnot. There's you know, when uh, my older son was younger, he would start coming to our camps. And we do a basketball camp every summer, like a lot of programs do. And ours is competitive. Uh, we, we create competitive environments and there's winners and losers. And some kids get a medal and some kids don't. And some get a trophy and some don't. And so we, we talk about that a lot in our three to four day, our four day camp. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to talk a young camper out of the bathroom stall. Um, because they got beat and they got beat publicly and they took off and ended up in the bathroom and closing the stall door. And I've crawled underneath um, too many bathroom stall doors. And I, I want to, I would like to admit <laughs> uh, just to be able to talk, talk the eight, nine, 10 year old, 11 year old kid through. It's okay. I mean, I get it. You got beat. They were upset. They were frustrated. They, um, and they, it was public. And so they didn't want their buddies to see him get beat. They didn't want, and so they went in the bathroom. So, so talking those kids through that, and and then again, now that I've got older kids, some of those kids are now playing with my son, or some of them um, I've, are at my house on a very regular basis. And and their growth in that, it's because of the public piece of it, because of the public failure, and they were able to get themselves through that. That I think there's a benefit to it. So grabbing all of those different people, and and some are okay with losing, um, some some are not okay with losing, some are very dramatic about it, some are dramatic to their teammates. I just think you have to have a consistency to you from a coaching perspective. I think you have to have individual conversations, not just team conversations. Um, you know, there's nothing more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals, right? That's one of the things that's up on our locker room door that that kind of drives my coaching, if you will, is I don't ever want to treat everybody the same because they're not. Hmm. Um, so I think you've got to understand that whether you're dealing with eight, 10 year old kids or you're dealing with 19 or 20 year old kids and, and then you try to help them within their story and sometimes they fit and quite frankly, sometimes they don't. And in the earlier, you can kind of sort that out and talk that through. Um, now, I'll back up a little bit. It's not just at that younger age group. It's not just the kids that you're trying to coach through it. You've got to coach the parents through it. Okay. Um, you've got a partner in that way. I think that's gotten screwed up a little bit in the youth sport world is that um, we're all of a sudden going to send our nine-year-olds out to the field or on the court. And it's just about the coach and the coach is going to tell the kids, 
hey, you got to be at practice tomorrow at three o'clock. Well, the nine-year-old kid's not getting to practice tomorrow at three o'clock unless the parent can get them to practice at three o'clock. Or, hey, we're, we're working on this and just talking to the kid. I think you've got to engage with the parents because those kind of fast forward at some point, the conversations that are around your kitchen table are going to have a direct impact on your ability to coach those kids. So if the parents aren't on board, if they're not engaged a little bit, they may not always necessarily agree. They may not like the tactic. They may not like the strategy. But I think you've got to engage the parents a little bit. Or as a coach, those 90 minutes you're going to spend with them are going to get completely destroyed um, over the course of the next week at the dinner table as they're talking about what could be done or shouldn't be done. So again, I, I think from a coaching, they're all different, but it's not just the kids that are different. It's the parents that are different. And and again, like we mentioned earlier, as a parent of an athlete, it, it, you look at things through a lens that you probably have never looked at anything before. So they need some coaching through it as well. Let's go back to the trophies and ribbons. Uh, I think I probably already know the answer since you said your camp doesn't hand one out to everyone, but that's kind of been the norm the last, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years of like, you know, the whole quote unquote, everybody gets a ribbon. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not an everybody gets, everybody gets a trophy uh, on things that are competitive, but do I think everybody um, has, has earned feedback? Absolutely. Um, And that feedback can be really good. I think, again, I'm of the belief that I think you've got to create competitive moment, moments that allow winning and losing. Um, I think there's a ton of lessons in losing as there is in winning. Mm-hmm. And if a kid, if a young student athlete or a young person never experiences um, losing, I think at some point that that floor falls through, right? Like I, I think at some floor, those, um, those skills that you create in that environment, I think will come in really handy um, as you continue to get older. So now, do I think, again, do I think everyone deserves recognition? Do I think everybody deserves conversation? Do I think everybody deserves some intentional sort of feedback? Absolutely. But I think if you create competitive environments, I think there's I think there's a winner and I think there's a loser. And I think the winner gets a trophy sometimes, which, again, is, goes back to the public thing, right? Like we're talking about, you know, we have a camp, we'll have 100 kids in the gym and we'll call out we'll call out a young man's name or a young girl's name and they'll walk in front of all hundred people and stand in front and get a trophy and turn around and the smile on their face, the impact that that has, I think is something we can't get away from. I think, I think there's such a positive impact for that one kid to be able to experience that, that I don't think you, I don't think you get away from it with um, the hope that somebody doesn't experience the other side of that. I, I would say that I'm in that same camp. Um, I think it is so important to learn, you know, that sometimes we do a really good job and sometimes we need to work a little harder and sometimes we just miss the mark and that's okay. And that we don't attach that to our sense of self. Like I, I can be dissatisfied with my performance in something and still feel good about myself as a human. And I think that the, the ribbons and trophies for everybody concept um, does kind of go away from that idea of like, we need to learn that there's ups and downs and it, we can handle the downs and it's okay not to be the best. I do think it's important, you know, in any activity for kids to be recognized for their individual strengths. So what you mm-hmm. said earlier, Brad, about, you know, every kid is different and does need a little bit of a different approach. I absolutely believe that. And part of building up their strengths is recognizing those and, and helping them to see them, even if they're not the, the strongest on the team or, you know, they're not the one getting the trophy, noticing hey, you're really good at this part, or you've really come a long way on this particular skill. I think that's such an important part of how these extracurricular activities can build self-esteem over time. And as Brad said, I mean, you, you got to lose to know how to win. I, exactly I guess. Right. At, at this point, full disclosure, Brad and uh, my son and Brad's son play on the same soccer team. And 
the soccer team last year my son was not part of, and I don't think they lost a single game. This season they've lost a couple, and some of the kids have taken it kind of hard because they're not used to it. But they kind of need that to know how, how good the winning feels, I guess, yep. right? Yep. I love it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I love I, it when they lose. I, I love when they lose. Like, how, how, I don't know how, I don't know what that is. I don't know what category you put that into it. But, uh, but again, I think it is. I think it's so important for them to, to know that and feel that. It means you're stretching yourself too, right? Like, like you can, you can sandbag athletics to get to a point where you win everything, but you're, you're not, you're not stretching yourself. You, you, you may be playing an inferior opponent on a regular basis. The value from that, I don't understand. Um, I guess, and again, I think at the youth level, at, at the ages that our sons are, um, I also think it's it's sometimes good for the family structure to experience losing too. Mm-hmm. Um, be, because again, it, that's, you're really coaching the entire family unit um, in those because that entire family unit has such a huge impact on your ability to grow and learn and and personality coach and strategically coach and all those different things. So I I, I do. I I have a little smile on my face when they get beat every once in a while because I think that's good for him. I know for mine, it's good for him every once in a while to get beat. We won't tell anybody. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit then, Brad, about parents on the sidelines. Uh, We talked earlier in the episode about how, you know, the kids on the field and the court, even though they're focused on that game, they can hear what those parents are saying, right? Absolutely. They can feel it sometimes, right? Like you ask my kids and they'll, sometimes they won't hear me, but they can feel like they know what I'm thinking, whether or not I say say anything or not. So yeah, you, you can, I mean, just imagine doing work. Imagine doing anything that any of us do and being told by somebody of what to do, trying to pay attention to that, and then having 15 other people tell you something either completely different mm-hmm. or telling you the same thing in a different way. Um, I mean, as a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, how confusing would that be of trying to navigate to try to get that done? But again, I get it. Like, again, I'm not I'm not throwing stones there because I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody um, from time to time. And that's why at most athletic events, you'll find me standing by myself. Um, and just because I can just speak quietly to myself mm-hmm. and not have anybody else or make it about anything else or you know, what would you say or what, what do you think? Should they be doing it this way or doing it that way? Just allow the coaches to do what they do. Allow the kids to try to have a little bit of free freedom to try to listen to the coach and, and uh, do that. But it, so again, I know it's really hard, um, but it really isn't helpful. Um, it really isn't helpful for the kids development in my opinion. But it can also bring families together, bring people to sporting events can. Nikki, off of that, when you have a kid, as Brad said, like nine, 10, 11, 12, and they're hearing all this stuff from their coach, from their parents, from other parents, from other teams, parents, and they're processing all of this on the field while trying to play, what does it do? How does it balloon to a child with anxiety when they're in those same shoes? So I can come at that from a couple of ways. One, you know, if you've got a, a child who has a, a standard amount of anxiety, you know, that, that just kind of functions in the the average way where there's anxiety there when they need it, but otherwise they're pretty cool mm-hmm. and, and calm. Hearing all those things can ratchet up their natural performance anxiety. So when you get into a sporting situation, not that I'm super familiar with this experience directly, <laughs> you, you get like a burst of adrenaline, you get, you know, your body kind of prepares you for battle in much the same way it would prepare you for or, you know, dealing with a potentially life-threatening situation. So you can have the same physiological response. So if you've got a kid who responds normally in a situation like that, it probably just 
motivates them, pushes them to try harder, kind of gets, you know, can really kind of light their fire and, and help them keep going. If you've got a kid who comes into this sport with a little more anxiety than they really need to be successful and they start to, to hear or sense that negativity or or the, the negative feedback, if they don't have a place in their brain to go with that, it ratchets that anxiety up in a way that can kind of shut them down, um, make it so they can't, you know, can't process, can't make decisions that looks like they freeze, you know, that fight mm-hmm. or flight response mm-hmm. can happen on the on the soccer field or, you know, wherever else you play sports ball. <laughs> these, these things. <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, that's, it, it makes it harder. It makes it harder for them to perform. And then, you know, depending on their processing after the game for these anxious kiddos, that negative stuff kind of gets in the kind of the gerbil wheel, you know, in Mm -hmm. the head and it just goes and goes and goes and, and they might obsess about that. Now, not all kids do that, but that's a potential risk with it. Um, and so it's important if you've got an anxious kid and you are introducing them to sports or competitive, um, you know, extracurriculars, it's really important to be talking with them about how, how do you feel during the game? How do you feel after what, what can you do about, um, your stress level when it gets up really high? If you start to get anxious, what can you do? And this kind of piggybacks off something you said earlier too, Brad, um, talking, helping the child to develop a good relationship with their coaches because they need to trust even more that that coach is there for them, that the coach understands what they might be going through. The average kid needs to trust their coach. Like that's important, mm-hmm. but a kid with anxiety needs just a little bit more confidence that that, that coach understands and is going to get it. And so that, that can be really hard to navigate if you have a coach that doesn't really understand what they're going through um, or a kid who's not very good at verbalizing what they need, that can be hard. And that's where parents can be advocates and say, Hey, you know, coach so-and-so, can we talk about this just to give you an idea of, of how they work? And that, that can mean, you know, lead to a very meaningful relationship for everyone. Um, but it can be challenging too. Yeah. And I was going to ask Brad from a coach's perspective, how should that be handled? Do you, do you prefer the parents come to you and be like, Hey, this kiddo has some anxiety or this kid has this issue or something like that? Does that help you or is it best to figure it out on your own with just you and the, and the child? Well, I mean, I, I think it's got to help, right? Um, I mean, I think as a coach, you would want as much information as you can. The hard thing is we're talking about youth sports. So they practice, what, once a week, maybe yeah. twice a week. Um, so as a coach, you're really around these kiddos a couple hours, maybe tops three or four hours a week tops and before you get into the public piece of competition. And so, so the hard part at that level um, especially at the youth level, you just don't have enough time to to be around these kids to try to navigate what each individual kid needs. And then you get to the public piece where it becomes competitive. You know, there's a scoreboard, there's a clock, um, there's wins and losses, and there's tournament titles to be run. And, and so and, and sometimes as kids, you can get caught into that undertow a little bit that you're not really getting what you need. The coach isn't intentionally not giving you what you need. There just hasn't been time there isn't time you've got, you know, whether it's a baseball team that's got, you know, 15 kids on it that you're trying to navigate mm-hmm. each thing. You practice twice a week, you individually hit. And that's why the parent cooperating, if you will, from a parent standpoint is so important um, because they're going to have way more impact on that development than what that coach is going to probably be able to do. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, I, I think my perspective is I would want to know. Um, I'd want to have that conversation with the parent. And, and part of that may be, hey, I, I get it. I will do what I can to give him what he needs. But I've also got 14 other kids that I'm trying to give what they need. And so it may not it may not get to what you can give them because I've got 90 minutes and 
in window in rain, cold soccer right. or whatever it may be to try to be able to navigate this a little bit. So I think the more information as a coach you have, the the, the better. Some will be more equipped, quite frankly, to be able to yeah. probably process that and work that in than what others. And again, I think that's where the partnership and the open lines of communication are pretty. I was just going to say a good point between the, the rec sports and the travel teams, because the rec sports are going to be volunteer coaches that might not be equipped to handle something like that. And they're only going to see the kids for a very minimal time before that seven-week season's over. The one piece of that, though, that I will add, like you said, the record in the travel sport thing, is I think that's a part we've really, really got screwed up in youth sports, is Mm. that when we talk about youth sports, most of us are talking about the travel piece. Um, It's become such the commonplace to where you don't have a chance to fail. You don't have a chance to equal playing time. You don't have a chance to give give kids a chance to be able to explore. I think those opportunities are just falling by the wayside. And so then it just you jump right into what used to be a 14 year old competitive schedule when you're eight. And so Mm. coaches are used to that. They're in that mode. They're trying to compete, compete, compete. And it gets away from the development piece because there's no time to develop. It's only public competition that parents want to win. And so you got pressure on that end of it. So again, if you can find some of those rec opportunities at an early age where it allows to split things a little bit, allows to be a little bit more, again, there isn't a clock, there isn't a scoreboard, there isn't some of those things. I think that's so, so important, but I, I'll be honest with you, it's hard mm-hmm. to find those anymore. Those are just going by the wayside. The parallel between you know what parents' expectations need to be for teachers is very similar to, to coaches, which we need to, yes, teachers and, and coaches need to be aware of the mental health needs of our children and what's going on, but we can't hold them accountable for every aspect of their development and, you know, dealing with these kind of symptoms. And so I just, I think it's, it's that open communication and keeping your expectations in check because it is not the job of the teacher or the coach to be able to, to repair all the stuff that might not be going very well. Um, but by talking about it, you have the opportunity for it to go better. Advice that I give families, you know, if, if they're a very sport oriented family and they're, they're worried or frustrated that their young kids just don't seem to have a knack for it or they're too anxious about it, I will encourage them, you know, either start with like less competitive sorts of things, do more, you know, art class and musical Mm -hmm. instrument or or things that are a little bit more one-on-one, help them to build some confidence in that area, then try again with some of the more performance or sports-based activities because maybe their confidence will allow for that. Um, And you made this point earlier, starting early with the less competitive, less involved, less travel, less all that is a really, really good way to kind of lay a foundation of skills and, and confidence that then translates to, you know, better, better performance and later activities. So the earlier you start, the better, but you also want to keep in check the amount of activities. If, if you've got an eight-year-old kid that's, you know, school practice, game practice, you know, and it's just every night of the week, there's something it, it, <laughs> Jed's cringing. Um, <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> but, it, but it can be, it can add to anxiety, but at the same time, there's lots of benefits from it. So it's as a parent, it's sort of knowing like what's right for your kid. You know, we've dropped some activities that we knew were getting in the way of some of the more important things, but we've added some new things in where those were taken away that might be a little bit less intense. So it's just knowing your kid, looking for those red flags and, you know, making choices that, that fit for your family. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I, I do also kind of want to reiterate, we're talking a lot about sports, but we're also talking any kind of extracurricular activity. And my next question is kind of for both of you and it's tryouts or auditions. So we'll hit some tryouts for, even though we just kind of talked about the downsides of the, the travel aspect of sports, 
but also auditions for band, for choir, for cheerleading. What advice do both of you have from Nikki, your uh, parents, and also a mental health therapist, um, behavioral health, uh, mental health therapist? That's right, right? Yep, okay. you got it. What do you do? You're a zookeeper <laughs> at the Omaha Zoo. Yes, yes. And then from Brad as a coach and also a parent, what advice do you have on when it comes time to try out for the team or to audition for the band or choir or cheerleading, whatever? Brad, you go first. From a parent standpoint, you don't sleep for about a week. Um, <laughs> so like they're, you know, you talk about the anxiety from from the kid walking into a tryout. Um, as a parent, you have the exact same exact same thing. The timing of when you put a kid in a tryout audition thing, I think is pretty important. And I think that's the that's the personality part, right? As you learn kind of where your kid is comfort wise, like, and I've, again, I've got three kids and all three of them are completely different on the confidence scale, right? Like my, my oldest was pretty low in it, the tryout audition thing early on and um, was not something she was going to, she was going to kind of be in or want to be in. My middle one's okay with it and it kind of excelled in it. So like nothing, he didn't really have anything go really wrong in that way. So it was like, yeah, I'm good. And my youngest feels like he could try out for the Los Angeles Lakers right now and be a part of the team. So <laughs> so, all the, so the, the personality and the confidence level that they have to put them in a, to basically put them in a win or go home environment, I, I think is so, so critical. Do I think it needs to happen at a really young age? No. Um, I, I really don't. And to me, it goes back to the coaching piece. If the earlier you start them in that process, the longer they're going to be in it and they will be in it until they get out of it completely. And so and I've told parents this multiple times, there's mileage on being coached because once you get into that kind of environment, that kind of team, all of your play is going to be directed play. It's going to be coached play. And when you're, and I'm as guilty as anybody, your kids running from this practice to this practice to this practice, that each one of those practices are structured, organized, coached practices. So when you start that, you'll, you won't get back out of it and then hope to get back into it in a couple of years. Once you start it, you're going to stay in it. And that's the try to the tryout audition piece of it is do everything you can to have some confidence that the, that, that the kid is in a good place to be able to either excel or to be able to understand the downside of it when you get into it. I do think it's important that they get into that. Um, they have those moments fail or succeed because that's the, you know, trophy, no trophy kind of, kind of thing. But, but again, as, as a, as a parent, you, you won't, you won't relax. Um, you know, we, we told our, our oldest son and again, there wasn't ever, we didn't really have a question whether or not he was going to make a team or not make a team. We felt pretty confident in that. Um, but we didn't let him know we were confident in it. Um, we see you, you're going to earn it and you're going to go in and we're not going to, we're not getting you a new pair of soccer shoes until they call and say that you're in, you're on that team. And then if you need them, then we'll go get them. So like we, we were very, we want him to feel the, the anxiousness a little bit of that process. Even if he didn't necessarily think there was an issue, we always told him there was like, there's no promises and no guarantees in there. Because again, I think that's how important that we think it is in kind of that development piece. Anxiety is designed to be like our, our own natural performance enhancer. So when it comes time for kids to try out for things or audition for something, I want them to be anxious. I want them to be very uncomfortable with that process because that's what makes them practice. That's what makes them, you know, go out there and keep doing the thing that's hard to do because they want to get better at it. It drives them. That anxiety is such an important component of auditioning or trying out to an extent. 
and just like we said in so many other episodes, it, it can become paralyzing and you'll recognize mm-hmm. that. You'll, you'll see it in your kid. You'll know, mm, yeah, they're a little more anxious than they need to be. But uh, to back up a step, if a child wants to audition for something, to me, that's evidence enough that they should. Right. Even if, you know, I, I always think about um, remember when uh, American Idol first came out and the they, they would have these people and they do these in-depth interviews and you think that they're going to be these wonderful singers and then they start singing and you're like, oh, no, who's been encouraging this person all the way along the way? But, you know, it, as much as we might cringe when that happens, you know what? I applaud the confidence and good for them because, yeah. you know, you win some and then you learn some. And so, you know, those kids that that weren't that great at singing probably went back and figured out another route to get what they wanted. And so um, wanting to do it is an important component and should be encouraged. When my kiddo, the oldest, wanted to try out for volleyball, I was like, oh, really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> um, just, you know, knowing her genetics and, <laughs> and whatnot, I thought, oh, that might be rough. But you know what? She did it. And it, she got hurt during the tryout, so she didn't make the team because of the injury. But I was so proud of her for putting herself through that because there was a lot of practice, a lot of sweat a lot of things that she just wasn't really drawn to by nature. And so it was just really cool to see her in that moment. And she was very anxious, but that anxiety was awesome because it pushed her forward. And so, um, you know, I, I think, I don't remember what your <laughs> original question was, Chad, but what I could say is that I think it is really good to be anxious about an audition or a tryout, but there is a cap to that. And when you have too much, it's time to kind of back off and look at, okay, is this a clinical issue? We need to go talk to someone about your in your own head. Um, you know, do we need to talk to an expert in sports psychology to figure out how to help you kind of, you know, come down from this? Or is it a matter of you're not ready and you're, you know, so that we're letting the anxiety take over and not using it to drive us to practice further? You know, it's just digging in to figure out what's in the way and then using that. And then if it's not time, it's not time. You know, if a kid is like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. We, we shouldn't force the issue. We can encourage, but not force. So my next question is for Nikki is when your daughter tried out for volleyball, is that when you got hit in the face twice with the volleyball or was that a, another activity? <laughs> no, those were all prior to that event. Oh, um, prior to. I sustained no injuries in my child's <laughs> audition for volleyball. I was really proud of myself. Very nice. Brad, I'd like to, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about your daughter who um, lives with anxiety. And if you could just kind of talk us through her age, because she's an adult now, right? 20. Yeah. So okay. you think she's an adult. Um, According uh, to the government, she is. Yeah, that's right. Correct. <laughs> there you go. So can you kind of give us a little timeline of, of when you noticed that anxiety, when it maybe peaked, when some of the good years were better than others, maybe when they went backwards, asking for a friend? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, my wife could probably give you exact dates, right? Like she could probably tell you exact dates of some things. So I'm probably not quite as uh, detail oriented as that. But really, it was in that that fourth, fifth, and sixth grade hmm. kind of time frame. But we really didn't think going through. We had any idea of how it started or where where it came from. Like she was she was headed to gymnastics class. She was she had friends in the neighborhood. She was running all over the place, and then it just absolutely crippled her at some point where she was scared to leave our side. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not want to leave us for anything. And the stuff that she loved to do, um, spend the night at a friend's house, go to grandma and grandpa's house, um, that became uncomfortable for her. And, and so we never could really come up with the kind of um, kind of the starting point of that, if you will. And it was, 
an 18 month, two year process where it was a struggle. Mm -hmm. And and my wife and I probably didn't handle it the right way. She handled it a lot better than I did. And she handled it a lot more than I did, to be real honest with you, of trying to figure out what that space was and, and try to when to force the issue. You know, I mean, one of those that we probably would have listened to this um, if, when, if this was a thing 10 years ago, when we kind of went through it for the first time. So um, when to push the issue when not to put it, and we pushed the issue with her. We really Mm -hmm. did. And, and I mean, there were times of dropping her off at school that I'd have to get out of the car and physically pick her up and and unlatch her fingers from the back of the seat and hand her to the security guard to take her into class. We were at that phase of it a little bit. So it did. We could never really figure it out. I think I think the closest we got was um, she started to I think she had either watched some movies or caught some news and the news wasn't like always news wasn't exactly super positive stuff. Right. So something had happened here or there was an explosion there or there was. And so she just got really scared that something mm-hmm. was going to happen. Um, and I think that's kind of what initiated some of that to start. But we can never really put our finger on it. So kind of fast forward to get through fourth, fifth and sixth grade. And it was some there were some rough days in there. Man, there were some rough days and. Um, and between my wife and my and myself and my parents live in town, so they're trying to help. And grandma was a pushover, so she said, I don't want to go to school. Grandma said, cool, let's go get donuts, and we're going to go home, and I'm going to make it feel good. So she, we didn't send her with her to school very yeah. often. Um, so we navigate that, and then we actually switched schools. And, and nothing, there was zero wrong with the school we were at. There was, um, there was no reason to, to switch schools, except it was a little bit of a smaller environment. And, and I tell you what, within... Within a couple of weeks, it started to shift and, mm-hmm. and we could see it shift and we got her into the school building um, in seventh grade. We were able to get her in um, with no problem. There was super rough days the, and, and the, we had to really kind of co-work with the uh, with the teachers and they were fantastic. And, and to a point where she gained more confidence and gained more confidence. And then then again, when she came and said that in eighth grade, her eighth grade year, she wanted to try out for high school cheerleading. We both kind of went, Ooh, okay. Um, and we knew she were, she would be fine physically, but we weren't sure where she was personally. And she did, she went and tried out. And that's one of those things you stand in front of everybody by yourself and do a, and do a cheer and you got to learn something. And she, again, it was rough, but she yeah. navigated it and did, did a good job. And, and now she's a, she's a junior in college and, and um, she's going to school down in St. Louis and, and we want her to come home a whole lot more than what she does. So, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so she, like it, it really has, you now she still has her tendencies, right? Like she still has her comfort zone pieces mm-hmm. and um, there's parts of it. She was home this week a little bit and she comes back and watches her brothers play and she comes to, we're in St. Louis watching a game and she wants to show up to be able to watch her younger brothers play. But um, she's she's very independent right now. She's studying psychology and doing all kinds of all kinds of stuff. Probably a little bit of her background probably has lent her to that. So um, but again, fourth, fifth and sixth grade was kind of the was our really rough years of trying to navigate it. And um, again, we made a couple small changes and um, and, and I think the, the, the school and the support system and like they, they just did an unbelievable job with her. And like I said, I, now I'm at a point I want her home more. Um, yeah. and then, then, uh, when there was a, there was a phase that we wanted her out the door, um, a lot more than what she wanted to. Good. I'm glad to hear. And the thing I want to add to it, just because, uh, she would be your oldest and you said, you know, you didn't handle it as best you probably could have, but as a parent, I mean, your oldest is kind of your experimental child. It's like they didn't hand you the manual when they gave you the baby at the hospital, right? So you're like, 
I guess this is what happens when they're this age. And so you, you do the best you can. And I, I just want to throw that support out to parents who are going through it right now that it's Absolutely. like you're doing the best you can and hopefully you're getting the help that you need. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we were making it up as we went, obviously. Right? But but again, we were we were trying to do what we felt like was. And I think we we're coming from obviously we're coming from the right place. And, and it, again, it worked. We had a lot of conversations and, and we talk about it a lot now because, again, we, we went through that and she bounced herself out of it at a terrific, engaging high school experience. And, and she's doing fantastic um, in college right now. The timeline that you shared, Brad, is is very common, you know, and I, I don't know when your daughter's particular um, anxiety started in, but for a lot of kids, we really see it surface in second grade. You might see signs of it well before that, but it really is noticeable in second grade. And then by fourth, fifth, sixth, we're, you know, it's just peaking and it's it's causing trouble in lots of settings. Everybody's aware, you know, kids are having a hard time. There's so much going on in their bodies too at that time that it just kind of, it's like everything's on fire for a couple of years. But then you get into junior high, high school, and you start to kind of find your voice and you feel figure out what your social group is and you figure out what you're good at. And even if you're still carrying just a boatload of anxiety through that, you've kind of got some things in place that make it a little easier to manage. And then you get to, to, you know, college and adulthood and you go, okay, well, that was really hard, but I got through it and look at all the strength I have as a result. So that's, that's really cool to, you know, she, she followed a great trajectory there. So. so as we wrap up today, I think it's safe to say that extracurricular activities are really good for kids. They can bring some challenges to the table that you have to deal with, especially with kids who uh, have anxiety and, and other diagnosed conditions, but it is an important way to build skills build confidence, and help kids just be more prepared for adulthood. Absolutely. Well, Brad, we thank you so much for your insight um, and for everything you're doing with youth sports and, and college sports too, because that's you know that's what brings home the paycheck, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. This was fun. All right. So that is episode 17, Extracurricular Anxiety. As always, we invite you to like us on Facebook. You can interact with us there. We also ask, we're getting to the point where we're like begging and pleading to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I feel like we say that all the time, but it really does help us out because that gets more ears on the podcast. And that's what we're all about is just spreading the awareness of childhood anxiety and other mental disorders. And, uh, by uh, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that is what it does. So we appreciate you listening and sharing this podcast with anyone you think would benefit. Our goal was to start a conversation and that conversation continues with you. 